And it's from Ezra 3, verses 1 to 13. We started uh, last week on chapter 1, the story of the um, people coming back from Persia and how Cyrus the king had, had uh, let the people come back. So chapter 2 is all the names of the people who came back and uh, that they were uh, coming back for a certain purpose. So chapter 3 tells us about that. And one thing that I noticed as we read through it is the enthusiasm of the people. It's just amazing, the enthusiasm. So reading chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Josedak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as free will offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. From verse 7, Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorised by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, son of Josedak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work, appointing Levites 20 years of age and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Jeshua and his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. 
But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, bow in prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for your word. and We pray now that as we uh, apply our minds to your word, that you would, by your spirit, be changing our hearts within us. And we pray these things in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Well, I wonder, when are the times when you feel uh, close to God? How about when you're um, watching the, uh, the sunrise? Uh, that's, that's always a good moment, isn't it? Uh, or when you're gazing at the vast array of stars in the heavens on a clear night. Um, what about when you're meditating upon God's word and you become so absorbed in God's word and uh, then that leads you to prayer and uh, you, you know that you're very close to God, don't you? When are those moments for you when you feel close to God? I think we see this kind of thing reflected in the Psalms. Um, like in Psalm 19, when David uh, looks at the sky and he says to God that the heavens declare your glory. Uh, he's saying, I know that you're there. I know that you're real. I know how glorious you are. The heavens declare your glory. Uh, or when he says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving my soul. And you know what that's like, don't you? When the Word of God, um, you're meditating upon the Word of God, and it just uh, revives who you are as a person and refreshes you. Is that your experience? When, when do you feel closest to God? Uh, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel knew that um, God was with them uh, in a way that was kind of special in a way that he wasn't with uh, people of other nations. Um, God had promised that he would be their God and that they would be his people and that God would dwell amongst them. For example, in Leviticus chapter 26, uh, God promised them, he said, I will live among you and I will not despise you. I will walk among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. Imagine that. Imagine God living among you. I mean, uh, it's, when you think about it, it's kind of a crazy thought, isn't it? God is bigger than all of creation. God is bigger than the constellations of the stars. Uh, God is the one who uh, has put the, the stars into place you know, with his fingers. And so how could God live among you? That's a, a kind of a crazy thought. And we know that uh, God, you know, God doesn't live in a block of land in the Middle East and uh, certainly doesn't live inside, inside a building. You can't put God in a box. Um, and, but yet in the Old Testament, uh, God's presence in Israel was symbolised. It was symbolised by a building um, and prior to that it was symbolised by a tent. 
And last week we were reminded that 600 years before Jesus lived, that the Babylonians had invaded Judah and they had destroyed Jerusalem and they had destroyed God's temple and that they had taken God's people out of the land and put them in exile in Babylon. But in the book of Ezra, um, which you might want to have open now, we now come to the text that we're looking at today, under the Persian king Cyrus, there was a group of about 50,000 Jews who were allowed to return home. Um, We see that in chapter 2, verse 1, which reads, uh, Now these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, uh, in company with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpah, Bigvi, Rehum, and Banah, the list of the men of the people of Israel. And then, of course, the, the rest of chapter 2, well, the rest of chapter 2 is actually probably the passage that you're glad that you were not asked to read. Um, although, uh, Jackie, I think, would have made a good fist of it. She would have done a great job. Um, but I'm not planning to read through, attempt to do this now. Um, the, um, there's good reason why God has given us this uh, list of difficult-to-pronounce pr- Hebrew names and let me just uh, share with you a few reasons why we have this list here in chapter 2. For starters in verse 2, first among their leaders were Zerubbabel and Zerubbabel represents the kingly line of Israel and then there is Jeshua who represents the priestly line of Israel. And so there's two important points being made there. The kingship and the priesthood are being represented. Uh, Secondly, verses 3 through to 20 tell us of um, people belonging to certain families. And this is a reminder to us of God's working through families through the generations. And then in verses 21 through to 35... Well, that's the list of the towns that people belonged to. Now, these towns would have been in ruins, um, but it is a reminder that God had given uh, this land and these towns uh, to his people um, earlier on in their history. And then fourthly, verses 36 to 70 are all about the priests, the singers and the temple servants. In fact, there's half a chapter on the, uh, the priestly um, people who perform the priestly functions. And there is good reason for that, because why, why did these people leave Babylon? Why did they trek across the desert um, back to Jerusalem? What was the reason for doing it? Uh, well, it was in order to rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem. Um, and in verse 64, there are 42,360 people plus 7,337 servants, plus 200 singers, 
plus 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and a whopping 6,720 um, donkeys. That's a lot of donkeys, isn't it? And so they have returned now to Jerusalem. After they uh, had returned, what was the first thing which they did? Well, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, all of these individual people were now gathered as one. Uh, friends, the essence of the Babylonian exile is that God had scattered his people. Um, but now uh, he had gathered them um, in his mercy. And what did they do? In verse 2, they rebuilt the altar of God. And in one sense, this is important. And this is the first thing that they did was they, they established an altar in the land. You know, I think of it a little bit like, um, you know, someone <coughs> conquering a new land and planting a flag, or as we'll be reminded of at the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, of Neil Armstrong going to the moon and planting the stars and stripes, uh, like claiming that territory in a sense. But this is actually more than that. This is more significant than that because uh, what they were saying here is that um, that they are now able to offer sacrifices to God in the land that God had promised uh, through Abraham. But this was not going to be easy for them. Take a look at verse 3. In verse 3, what emotion did they experience when they were doing this? Can anyone see it? They experienced fear. And uh, this is because of that this was not unpopulated territory. There were other people living in and around. Um, partly because of the... Uh, when the Assyrians had earlier taken the northern kingdom into exile, uh, they replaced people with... Um, with, with Assyrians and people from other nations. They repopulated uh, the, the northern kingdom of Israel, very close to Jerusalem. And also there would be the descendants of the Jews who, who did go into exile in Babylon as well. And there'd been a lot of intermarrying that had taken place. And so, uh, as we'll see as we we'll go through Ezra, uh, there's going to be opposition to the returnees because the people who were dwelling there were not too happy about the fact that the Jews were returning. This was not empty space. But in verses 3 to 6, the altar was built, and then for the first time in 70 years, God's people were worshipping God in Jerusalem. How did they worship him? Well, two ways. Number one they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. We see that in verse 4. Let me read verse 4 for you. In verse 4 it says, Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. I, I love the word tabernacle. Does anyone know what it means? What's a tabernacle, folks? No idea? A church? No a shelter, yeah. It's, a, it's, it's like a tent. And it's an old, old English word for tent. I think the King James used it and uh, we've used it ever since. 
So it's a, it's a temporary dwelling. Um, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tents, was in order to remind Israel that they were once living in, a temporary, in temporary accommodation, that they were once living in tents because God had rescued them out of their slavery in Egypt and they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years uh, before entering into the Promised Land and the uh, Feast of Tabernacles was to remind them of that, that, they, that God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. It reminds them that God is a saving God. Now, secondly, they offered up lots of sacrifices to God. Verse 5. After they had presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. What is the purpose of an animal sacrifice? Well, it is to atone for sin. Um, it is to, uh, to pay the penalty for sin. Uh, that uh, they would give up their, their best livestock. Um, they, the livestock would shed blood that would be, that would be offered up um, as an atoning sacrifice for their sins. And all of this makes us think about Jesus. I mean, he is the one who has saved us out of slavery, our slavery to sin. And in Romans chapter 3, Paul says that, that on the cross that God presented Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sins through faith in his blood. And so it points to a greater future reality. But back in Ezra chapter 3, their first priority was the altar. And then in verses 7 through to 13, they began the big job, and that was to rebuild the temple. It was going to take 24 years before this temple would be completed. But in chapter 3, they got as far as laying the foundations. And that's always a good moment, isn't it? When you're building a new public building, sometimes you have a found foundation stone laying ceremony, don't, don't you? And uh, they, had a, they, they had laid the foundations. Take a look at what happened. In verse 7 it says, Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters, and they gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorised by Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, this actually sounds a lot like when Solomon built his temple because in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 2 uh, Solomon got his cedar from Lebanon um, he had it shipped to Joppa and he paid for it the balance of trade thing got sorted out uh, by food supplying food so that's what's happened again this is temple mark 2 and so it's all good everything's going fine uh, in fact, when they laid the foundation for the temple, there's this big celebration that takes place. Um, have a look at that in verse 10. Uh, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David king 
of Israel. I, I think Jackie was right when she said that what you read in this is, is a certain amount of joy. And uh, uh, that's what we see here, isn't it? There's, there, there, it doesn't sound like it was a quite solemn, um, sombre occasion, does it? Um, it sounds a bit raucous, actually. Um, they, there's, there's symbols that are clashing. There's trumpets that are, that are blasting. It's noisy, it's joyful, it's thankful, and it's only the foundations. But in verse 12, there is a different picture. For there we're told that many of the people there who were the seniors amongst them, the elderly, uh, who as children had actually seen the Temple of Solomon, they were, they were in tears. They were weeping. Uh, not tears of joy, but tears of some degree of sadness. Because they saw the foundations and they knew that this temple would be nothing like the glory of Solomon's temple. Uh, we know that that's uh, correct because one of the prophets at the time was Haggai. And Haggai had something to say about this. I, I want you to turn to Haggai, if you wouldn't mind. Um, keep a bookmark in Ezra, chapter 3. And you find Haggai, chapter 2, on page 668 of one of the Bibles and page 948 of the other. Um, if you wouldn't mind turning to that. I should have thrown this up on the screen. It's been a busy week though. So 668 in the plain Bible and 948 in the other one. Okay, I've got it now, so that's the start. Okay, Haggai chapter 2 verse 1. Uh, so Haggai is in... The, he's one of the returnees, so he's in, in Jerusalem. And it reads, On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? he's talking about the people those elderly people um, who were weeping well how does it look to you now does it not seem to you like nothing but now be strong O Zerubbabel declares the Lord be strong O Joshua son of Jehozadak the high priest be strong all you people of the land declares the Lord and work for I am with you declares the Lord Almighty this is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. 
The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. So that is what God has promised. He's promised that the glory of that present house would far exceed the glory of Solomon's temple. And yet the reality was that that temple was nothing like the glory of Solomon's temple. And neither was Jerusalem particularly great at all. Far from it. Uh, Jerusalem was now ruled, far from being the kingdom of God with the great expansive kingdom that Solomon did, it was now ruled by the Persians. And when the uh, Alexander the Great um, uh, conquered, it would be uh, ruled by the Greeks. And then when the Roman Empire arose, it would be ruled by the Romans, by the Caesars. And it would be a small, insignificant backwater of the Roman Empire. Solomon's temple was dripping with gold. Um, when Solomon's temple was dedicated, the, the glory of the Lord the, the, in a cloud just filled the temple. Uh, and God displayed his glory magnificently so. How could God's presence be more glorious than that? Well, what if God should turn up? I mean, not symbolically in a cloud, in a, in a building, but what, what if God should turn up in person? What would that be like? Let's have a look at John's Gospel for a moment. If you can flip over to John chapter 1. That's not too hard to find in your Bibles, John chapter 1. I want to read to you from uh, John 1 verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Well, who is this Word? Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? He is God. Go down to verse 14, where it tells us that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. If we're reading from the King James, it would say the Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. When Haggai said that the, the glory of the new temple would, would far outstrip the glory of Solomon's temple, he was pointing to a far greater reality that is found in the person of Jesus. Uh, you, you cannot have God more present amongst you than for God to be dwelling amongst you in person. For God to become a man and to tabernacle amongst us, to dwell amongst us. Now, you might say, well, that's all very well if you happen to live in first century Judea and um, <clears throat> got to meet Jesus. Uh, but what about us here today? How can we experience the presence of God like that? 
Uh, some people say wrongly that you can experience the presence of God by entering into certain buildings which are architecturally designed so as to create the impression of being very spiritual. Um, some people claim that it's by having certain types of music um, in, in a church service which crea create the right atmosphere, either a sombre atmosphere or an emotional atmosphere that um, is somehow con conducive to God uh, coming and being with us amongst us. But if either of those were the case, then actually Jesus may as well not have died on the altar of the cross and may as well not have risen from the dead. Because when Jesus went to be with his Father in heaven, did he leave us alone? No, he sent God the Holy Spirit. And what is the, the work of God the Holy Spirit? God the Spirit works in our hearts, doesn't he? God the Spirit convicts us of our sin. God the Spirit uh, draws us to put our trust in the gospel of Jesus. And God the Spirit changes our lives from the inside out. So that God dwells not in a building, but in us, in you and me. We are the temple. Um, in Ephesians chapter 2, um, Paul says that the foundation of the temple, uh, well, it's not actually the foundation that they were laying back there in Ezra chapter 3. The, founda the foundation of the temple is the apostles and the prophets and their message. The, the cornerstone of the temple, the stone that keeps the temple in alignment, is actually Jesus. And the, the building blocks of the temple, it's actually us. We are the building blocks of the temple. And Paul tells the Ephesian Christians that they are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Um, elsewhere, Paul says that... Uh, uh, that uh, we are the temple of God, we are the glory of God. And so how do you experience the presence of God? It's by trusting in the message of Jesus. It's by trusting that he died for you, that he rose again, and by turning your life over to him, to loving and serving him. Um, there is no greater experience, there is no way that you can get closer to God than for God to dwell in you by his Spirit. Now, I'll just think about this for a moment because what do you, what do you reckon about it? What do you think about us? Um, do we look glorious? Uh, do we look more glorious than Solomon's temple? Solomon's temple was dripping with gold. <laughs> and, uh, <coughs> and uh, you know, we... God calls those who are lowly, um, those who are poor, those who are not particularly impressive to be um, members of his, of his household. And he does that to show his glory, doesn't he? Uh, we're not we don't look particularly flash on the surface, but the glory of God's people um, is seen in ways that are different to that. The glory of God's people 
is seen in lives which have been changed. As Christ dwells in us by his spirit, our lives are changed. So that the fruit of the Holy Spirit ought to shine through us. And that means that um, we're to be different. We're to be different to the world around us. We're to be different to the people who we, we once were or the people who we would be if it were not for God's grace in our lives. So that uh, uh, instead of immorality and discord and jealousy and selfish ambition and so on, um, we should be people who are known for our love, our joy, our peace, our patience, our self-control. Um, we should be known for our character that people can see Christ in us. If Jesus, by his Spirit, dwells in us, then ought, people ought to be able to see that. That in meeting us and, and, and getting to know us uh, through our word of the gospel and the lives that we live, that they should be able to say that that person knows God. That person has something about God in them. Um, I remember a young man who was not a Christian, but uh, one day he decided to, to come to church. He'd been invited to come to church. And as he came to church here, he, he heard God's word and it made sense to him. And others here took time to, to get to know him and to find out about his life and to share their lives with him as well. Um, he came back the next week and the week after that and the week after that and the week after that. And uh, it was sometimes later that he said that uh, when he first... He said, when I first started coming, I didn't know God, but now I do. Um, I know God through his word and through his people. Uh, he told me that um, he'd go home from church and he'd almost weep, weep because of the people that he'd met here. That uh, there was something about your lives, the love, the grace, the patience, the, the joy that you have that he had not experienced um, in his own life uh, or in the lives of others who were his um, uh, community in which he lived, the relationships that he had. And I met up with him um, just a few weeks ago and he, because he no longer lives in Port Macquarie and he was sharing with me how uh, about the evangelism that he does and how he um, uh, shares the gospel with people um, in the town in which he lives that uh, they would see God in him, God dwelling in his life. So different, um, so godly. And uh, friends, um, Solomon's temple's got nothing on that. Let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. That the word did become flesh and made his dwelling amongst us and by your spirit that you dwell even in us. Uh, we pray that we would be the people that um, would by our word and by our lives um, make a difference 
that people would see Christ in us and uh, that that would bring glory to you and salvation for others. Amen.